Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Happy Monday. Welcome to The Hash here on Coindesk TV. I'm Zach Sewer. We got Wendy O. We got Will Foxley. We got Christy Harkin. We're going to get you up to speed on the news stories that caught our eye today. Let's do it. I'm passing it off to me. High five to me. All right. Uniswap. And this is a good one. This is a big story about DeFi <laughs> governance and the wilds of DeFi governance. Now, a little bit of backstory before I toss it to the guests on our show. But the backstory here is that Uniswap is looking to deploy a version of itself on the BNB chain, right? And... Associated with that, they need to bridge some aspects of those contracts over to that chain. There's proposals for various bridging solutions to be involved in this. And as such, some of the big backers of these various solutions are coming out to sort of favor their own horse in this race. And it's getting a little bit ugly. So everybody's talking about this one over in Uniswap DeFi governance land. Lots of good stuff to dig into here. I saw Wendy wanting to go in on this one. So I will toss it straight to her. Wendy, what are your thoughts? So I think that this is super cool that we're actually seeing DeFi governance come into play. But another thing about it I don't like is we're talking about a very large, large, large VC firm that spends a lot of money in the industry. So is it really good that they are kind of giving their input? The next thing that I do want to add is that I like Binance Smart Chain because and BNB Chain because it's affordable to use. But there's so many problems over there because that network doesn't seem as secure as some of the other solutions and products that we already have. So I'm kind of glad that they are not going to be deploying that on BNB chain just for that reason. I know that might be a hot take, but I want to get Will's opinion because he was not in his head. And we see a window in the background. Will, what's going on? You're not confined anymore? Yeah, I'm not in prison anymore. Yeah, I got out, got out of the cell after a few months, which was nice. Uh, Zach, there was a really great opportunity for you to make an old pun there. There's unicorn in the race, right? And that's the whole issue here with A16Z, Jump Crypto, all these firms that they want to have their own implementation of Uniswap. They want to govern the Uniswap protocol how they want it to be seen. And that includes bridging to different networks. This idea of multi-chain thesis really has come into play 
over the last few years, it hasn't been as strong as many people want it to be. But there have been a few chains that have had some lasting impact, including BNB. Uniswap is probably the most important protocol built on top of Ethereum itself, or most important DAP, I should say. And so wherever that DAP is going to go has importance, right? Just like you mentioned, if Uniswap is going to go to another chain, then you have to add some different functionalities to uh, that other chain. And so you have to have a little disagreement or you have to have an argument about it and figure out how you want to have that deployed. And we see here that A16Z, Jump Crypto, some others like Robot Ventures, they're all sort of figuring out how to do this in a decentralized way using the Uniswap token. Go back to 2020, the Uni token basically was launched out of this idea that they needed to crush other competitors to the Uniswap exchange. He launched this Uni token. A few years later, it's sort of a problem, right? Where some people have too much Uni, some people don't have enough. Is this really the best way to launch a new uh, application on chain is just by voting with Uni token? I don't quite know. One thing to note here is that both these guys have different reasons for wanting Uniswap to be on different chains or not different chains. And that's really because of the bridging aspect. Bridges allow you to move from one chain to another and they're gatekeep at this point. We don't really have good decentralized bridging technology right now. So whoever is controlling the bridge from one chain to another stands to gain probably a decent amount of money or at least an understanding of where that money is going to go and then be able to trade based on top of that. So that's what they're really trying to get to the bottom of here. I think Jeff Crypto and A16D have different bets on who's going to win the bridging game. And that's why they're really voting very heavy in this debate. I'm going to throw it to Christy really quick and then throw it back up to Zach. Yeah. Okay. So there were two things that kind of came to mind for me. First off is last year, almost to the day, Wormhole had a massive exploit. And that is a problem that I think has to be addressed in the general scheme of things when it comes to bridges. Bridges are notoriously, I think, <laughs> subject to attack. Every, every other week we're hearing about this and that other bridge having some sort of massive attack. And when I heard Wormhole in the story, my brain immediately went to last year's big attack where they lost a, a ton of money. I mean, sure, that helps with, for security. Now, there are two sides also when, from a tech perspective when it comes to open sourcing technology. On one hand, it gives developers a really awesome chance to look at what they're doing, suggest improvements and all. But there is also the other side of things where with an open source, when you open source everything, it reveals possible exploit attack vectors. And that is something that has always been a bone of contention, especially among security-related products like wallets, for example, hardware wallets, software wallets. Some of them just are really, really antsy about open sourcing their software in a big way because there, there are security concerns, trade-offs associated with open sourcing. And when it comes to bridges and their, I think, innate vulnerabilities right now, that sounds like a pretty bold move. I understand where they're coming from, and I understand the need for open sourcing, and in many cases, rah-rah. But in this case, I kind of went, hmm, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> Let's see how, how long it takes to have another wormhole exploit. But that was just my, you know, first take on it. Yeah, so worth mentioning, you know, I think it's like wormhole versus layer zero are kind of the two big bridging solutions that are being proposed here, and each have their major backers, right? I think A16Z is sort of in the uh, layer zero camp with Jump being a primary backer of Wormhole, and you mentioned sort of that big famous Wormhole exploit that took place about a year ago. That's certainly a, a big part of this. I think uh, you know this is not a decided process, right? And I think the crazy thing about DeFi governance is that you get to see these things play out in real time with stakeholders in these ecosystems putting up their large holdings in these governance tokens to dictate the future of what happens. 
And I think what people are seeing here unfold is, you know, potentially some degree of, I mean, if you look at like sort of the, 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 the map of like the token holdings that are involved here, you have a giant token holding from A16Z, but you also have some fairly substantial token holdings from other people who are interested in the future of this protocol uh, and how it's going to exist on BNB chain and with what bridge, right? So it is really fascinating to watch these sort of shareholder votes. And I say that with a little bit of caution, knowing that securities lawyers are probably tuned into this part. But you're essentially watching shareholder votes in a big protocol take place in real time. And you get to watch these various potential conflicts of interest emerge around some of these voting blocks, right? Because all these tokens are also liquid and the price of these tokens are often influenced by whatever decision is the ultimate outcome. So it is this sort of really fascinating, I think, new sort of corporate governance that we get to see unfold in real time that leads to strong feelings, big tension, and big stakes on the line. I'm just going to toss this quickly to Will for his last thoughts before we change gears. What do you think? Yeah, last thought on this before I actually take the next story is that we've tried this before in crypto history. So this is not a new thing. It's not new to DeFi by any means, and it's really not new to crypto. Going back to early Bitcoin days, a lot of decisions on how Bitcoin would change is based on flag. So a node could say that I want to change this protocol or I don't want to change this software. Miners would be involved with that as well. It's still basically how they do that. I've seen a lot of different, different protocols in the past try to do this, including Ethereum with some carbon voting ideas. A lot of these things just end up failing at some point. They just don't really work. So it's interesting to see that DeFi continues to pursue this. And right now, you're kind of seeing why it hasn't worked out in the past, right? Big blocks have big voting influences, and they basically can kind of determine where the money is going to go. That doesn't make a lot of people happy. We'll leave that conversation there, though, and let's turn over to yet another Ethereum topic. Let's talk about Starkware, which has decided to open source its Starkware prover. This is a pretty big deal. Why? Because Starkware is valued about $8 billion as of last valuation. And they're deciding to open up their core technology to everyone. This was just announced at their newest conference in Tel Aviv, Israel, over the weekend. This is a pretty big deal because a lot of people have been using Starkware or they've been getting very hyped to use Starkware, which is Ethereum scaling technology. Uh, uses something called zero-knowledge proofs in order to decrease gas fees and increase throughput on the Ethereum main chain. A lot of people have been hyped for Starkware. There's a lot of different solutions out there, but I think Starkware has been one of the most important scaling tools coming out that a lot of Ethereum developers and researchers have been waiting on to go live. And now the fact that they've basically open sources shows that they have continued interest in following the crypto ethos, which is really founded upon open source software. Zach, I want to throw this one over to you. I think this is a great crypto community, crypto culture story, an $8 billion valuation, and then you turn around and open source your software. Yeah, that's super cool. Rah, rah on that. I think also it just reflects that there's a bumper crop of all these roll-ups that are actually doing stuff in Ethereum land, right? You have various sort of solutions on the marketplace for all these transactions to occur at this roll-up level and then get settled down to the Ethereum base layer. And I think it's really interesting to see that this one is emerging as potentially one of the bigger ones, right? Starkware with Starknet is certainly in that conversation. You have Optimism, you have Arbitrum, you have all these other things that are out here trying to make Ethereum more functional, more speedy, and letting kind of the Ethereum layer one be that settlement layer that may be ultimately more efficient. This suggests that Starkware wants to see itself in that conversation for the long haul, but you see more and more activity around these rollups. And I think there's a lot of different competing visions for how they should best be secured, how they should best operate, and ultimately how they should all be connected, you know, going back to the bridge conversation, how this hyper multi-chain reality that we find ourselves potentially entering and how those are talking to each other in a way that makes it usable across these different networks. So I'm going to kick it to Wendy for her thoughts on um, this particular decision. 
I actually think it's pretty cool. And that just goes to show you how important competition is in the crypto space and in every industry. If we didn't have all of these competing layer two solutions or products that are offering, you know, similar similar services, I don't think that they would have offered this or they would have made it open source. I think they would have kind of continued to gatekeep it. And I feel like if they didn't, or if they didn't make it open source, then other people would just create something that was similar that could potentially be better. So this is a good way for them to keep their foot on the pedal and also kind of follow that Bitcoin ethos because Bitcoin is open source too. So I like it. I'm for it. Yeah, I'll sign it back from there. I think just following up on what Zach was talking about with the ZK rollup implementations, we have the optimism stuff. And actually, the other day, we saw that Optimism just flipped Solana in terms of transactions. And that was an interesting sort of uh, moment because you start looking at these layer ones and you start looking at these layer twos and you start asking, like, which one's going to become more important. And on that metric itself, I would say it's like normally overhyped when you look at transactions, total volume locked, all those sort of things. Like, I think you need more nuance in the debate because oftentimes these new L2s are bootstrapped using Ponzi games. I mean, that's just like a known fact. You're trying to get traction on top of your new. L2, so they'll launch some sort of protocol uh, with incentives to get people on this uh, onto the L2. And so, but but at the same time, we really need to like look at the the debate here, which is like, is there going to be a multi-thesis, multi-chain thesis, Ethereum versus all these other L1s, or is everything going to be built on top of Ethereum with layer twos? I think Starkware open sourcing its protocol, allowing more competition, bringing in more L2s into the game shows you that there is like a lot of momentum behind that L2 thesis as compared to a lot of L1s that are starting to wither at the vine. Christy, I'll throw it over to you though for last take. Yeah, first off, uh, I clearly got ahead of myself. <laughs> I was so excited about this story I started talking about during the last story. Open sourcing, Starkware, not wormhole. At any rate, my point still stands about open sourcing and how there is that security uh, trade-off in that sometimes you will have the, of course, you want developers to be able to look at your code and you want everybody to see what's going on with it and offer suggestions. But there is that security trade-off in that it it makes everything more visible and attack vectors in that way also more visible. And that this is something that any uh, software or hardware company battles with. So it's a big decision to make. And it's one that, you know, they're not going to take lightly and they're going to take time to implement to make sure that everything is secure when they put it out. We have to talk about this really, really cool story. So, well, I don't know if it's cool or not. I might have to put on my crown. But Visa Eyes high value USDC settlement payments on Ethereum. According to a report, Visa is seeking to meet customer requests to convert crypto into fiat, similar to how it converts foreign currencies. So far, Visa has an integrated blockchain tech to support regular money movement on its network. And Head of Crypto said they have been testing how to accept settlement payments from issuers in USDC starting on Ethereum and paying out USDC on Ethereum. I think it's interesting that they picked USDC because I kind of think that USDC is going to be the US digital dollar. I would love to get Christy's thoughts on this. I think what's interesting about this is that even though we've had quite a few regulation stories over the last few weeks where it seems that governments are you know, cracking down and governments are, are looking at crypto askance, we're getting a big player like Visa showing really, uh, I, I think, a vote of confidence in crypto. Now, it's a stable coin, and, but it's on Ethereum. And I think that, I think that it, it's just an interesting turn of events that way that you know, no matter what the regulators are saying, that we're getting, we're getting something kind of positive, like a positive signal from a really big company. Zach, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, Kyle Sheffield, I think, remains one of the more interesting people in crypto. He's been at it for a while as the head of Visa's crypto efforts. You know, Visa and Circle have been working together since late 2020. So this is by no means new. But he's over there, I think, at that Starkware conference, uh, mentioning that they're uh, exploring ways to settle, you know, larger sums on the blockchain itself. And I think this is, this is smart. These are essentially like payment rails. We're going to talk about the Lightning Network in a little bit. Ethereum also is just a way to transact value across borders in a way that can be more cost effective than existing systems. And Visa, I think, has been attuned to this for a number of years. They were involved in the, in the Libra project when it first launched. They've been around, they've been sort of through this thing, trying to figure out what's the best way for them to embrace this technology in a way that prevents this technology from ultimately unseating them. Visa remains really interesting in the payments realm, especially with like regulated stable coins. It's a, it's a no-brainer. It could be a more efficient way for them to get money uh, across border, as alluded to here. Interesting to see this uh, continue to evolve, you know, continue to take shape. Yeah, hoping to see more of, more of out of Visa and its crypto efforts. They've certainly been at it for a while now. Will, toss it your way. Yeah, I'm going to fact check myself on the last segment and then use that as a segue to this topic, actually. So Optimism and uh, Solana, the metric I was referring to is actually total market cap, not transactions per second. But in this case, I would like to bring up the fact that transactions per second doesn't really matter for this story because they're talking about high volume transactions. And why does that matter? So like in this headline from Blockwork, you see they're saying Visa eyes high value USDC settlements. And I think that's a lot of what these platforms are looking for, right? They're looking for high value settlement. They're looking for high value because you have very high security when it comes to crypto, right? Uh, that's a lot of what the Bitcoin maximalist thesis around Bitcoin is. We want to use Bitcoin for high value transactions. And we really want to focus in on security. We don't want any sort of changes to the chain. Bitcoin, if it goes to a million dollars, people will start using it for cross-border settlements. Banks will start using it. International governments will start using it. We don't care too much about other stuff. We care about the big stuff. And I think Visa and these other players are also looking at USDC. They're looking at some of these other uh, stablecoin projects and being like, hey, this is actually a pretty good alternative to what we have right now. In the banking world, you have SWIFT, these, all these interconnected banks that go through all these government processes. It's very slow. It's arduous. You have to check a lot of boxes. But if you're just doing it with Ethereum, you're just doing it on uh, whatever proprietary MetaMask ripoff you're using, like it's not too difficult. And you can move large sums of money with the same uh, transaction security or any other transaction on that chain. So I think that's my walk away from the story. And it's not super surprising at this point. Wendy, I'll throw back to you for your next take, though. I'm actually kind of excited to speak about the next story because it kind of directly relates to this. Because we talk about how secure Bitcoin is, but Bitcoin ultimately does need some sort of layer two scaling solution, like the Lightning Network, to really, really operate just because the technology is a little bit older than some of the stuff that we have. And keep in mind that when you're settling something from the Lightning Network onto the Bitcoin blockchain, that is in itself sometimes a larger value transaction because it has taken all of those little wee transactions off of the Bitcoin blockchain and settled it onto the chain itself. So you're not having actually a bunch of little mini transactions on Bitcoin, which I guess can bring us to our next story. Yeah, <laughs> so the that. next story. Segway that, Joy. Yes. Great segue. How about that, eh? So we're now seeing a report that Bitcoin has hit an all-time high uh, on in capacity on the Lightning Network. And what? So what we're talking about with the Lightning Network, of course, is the layer two. Uh, scaling solution that is has been developed and honestly you have to remember is still being developed it is still very very young technology that we're working on 
And when we say that there is an all-time high in Bitcoin capacity, what we're talking about is the amount of Bitcoin that's in a channel. Because what you have to do is you send your Bitcoin through channels. And that channel that you send it through has to have the capacity within it to match the amount that you're, you're trying to send in very, very short form terms. There's a lot more to it. So every channel, if you're going to send a small amount, usually a small amount of Bitcoin, you need to send it through a channel or maybe even several channels, hops, to get to the final destination. The more channels there are, the more opportunities there are for you to find a channel that will send your transaction. And the more capacity that there is within those channels means that more Lightning Network value can be sent through the network. So when we say right now that there is capacity, right now there is 4,496 Bitcoins and change being locked in various channels. We're talking that is spread out over 8,679 channels and 17,125 nodes. Those are the hot points, shall we say, that verify what's going on inside the Lightning Network and send the transactions through the channels. The average amount that you're going to see is about a $1,500 capacity. It, that's the median capacity for every channel. Um, so you can send about that much through most of the channels. That's where we are with our Bitcoin, our Bitcoin capacity in the Lightning Network. And it's a pretty good metric when it comes to figuring out what the, the vote of confidence that Bitcoin users have right now in the Lightning Network. So uh, let's see who wants, to, who wants to talk about that. Will? Yeah, I'll snag it from you. I'm actually sort of interested why they decided to write this article, because if you look at Lightning capacity over time with the amount of Bitcoin in these locked channels, it's basically up and to the right since the beginning. Like there's been some dips, there's been some points where people pull out capacity from Lightning, but at the same time, mostly people use Lightning basically to hodl Bitcoin. Uh, they put it onto a Lightning wallet, they put it into a Lightning channel, sort of sits there. Maybe if they're really adventurous, they'll start routing payments on behalf of other users. The other stuff we look at is maybe there's like exchanges that build on top of Lightning, or there's like these Lightning wallets that keep open capacity on their channels. And so you don't really see like light, uh, Bitcoin leave the Lightning network. You normally see it move there and then stay there. That being said, there has been a lot of increasing capacity over the last two years. It's sort of been like a silent story out there. A lot of Bitcoiners like to talk about it, but nobody else really pays attention to it. And this locked Bitcoin and Lightning really mirrors what we see in the growth of DeFi over the last two years, where there's been a lot of Ethereum, a lot of different tokens locked in these DeFi protocols. And over time, they've both just sort of increased. So to me, this is just more of a story about there's a lot of scaling technologies coming to different blockchains and people are starting to have actually more confidence in them. But that is about it to me. Zach, I'll throw it up to you. Yeah, I guess the question is like, are people actually using this more, right? Are people actually using Bitcoin for micropayments as was originally envisioned by the Lightning Network? Or is it just a vehicle to hodl? I think that's actually the interesting question. Don't have enough uh, data on that one to give it an answer. So I'll toss it to Wendy. Because I think that, again, is like the promise of the Lightning Network. It's like, let's make payments the thing that Bitcoin is all about. And yet over the last couple of years, you know, Bitcoin as an asset rather than uh, a means of transacting has sort of seemingly displaced that. So I don't know. Wendy, what are your thoughts? I think it kind of depends where we're at in the cycle. Like people's opinions and narratives change over time, depending on where we are in the world. And I think the cool thing about Bitcoin is if you want to use it for micropayments, great. If you want to use a Lightning Network, great. If you want to use the original network, great. If you want to hodl it, fantastic. You pretty much get to do whatever it is you want to do. And that's the beauty of Bitcoin. 
It's a little bit different than traditional finance because with traditional finance, we're kind of stuck and forced to use banks. But with Bitcoin, we do have options. And I'm excited to see what the developers are going to continue to create, especially those NFTs on Bitcoin, because I love seeing people bicker back and forth about it. And realistically, should they bicker back and forth without it? Because when I think of Bitcoin, I think of education of the monetary system and I think about freedom and liberty. That's a good stuff. I mean, optionality really is what it's all about in crypto, right? Like there's different levels of comfort and they're all out there for folks. So I think that's a fantastic note to close it on. I also have to read a headline. Hold on one second. This headline (laughs) just in. A live read. Um, Yeah, this is a live read. Hold on, stick with me. All right. Binance, you know, that big old crypto exchange, you know, largest one by volume. So they're suspending US dollar deposit this week uh, relating to their banking relationships. It's a developing story. You should go to coindesk.com. Check that out. Mm. It starts on Wednesday. Story's out there now, though. You should go read it. It's a bit of an awkward close. Sorry for that, guys. But hey, that's what it is. Don't get down. Get your breaking news from the hash, guys. Come on. Come on. That's what we do. Go read more. Coindesk.com. It's great. All right, that's it. I'm it. I'm Zach. That's Will. We got Wendy. We got Christy. We're the hash today. We'll be back tomorrow. We wish you a good week and a happy Monday. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 